Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Brain and brain! What is brain? It is controller. Is it not? And I go to Travis Elementary. Dave, are you a bozo or a chimp? <laughs> no, Bo. I backed a bozo. <laughs> <laughs> and and probably probably also a bonobo. Because, uh, as we'll learn from our guest, Lori Santos, this week, clearly I like rubbing GGs. Yes, we have Lori Santos today. That was Eliza Summers opening the show with a question. I actually like Bozo or it's well, better. Well, my hair than sometimes looks like Bozo, so I think that it's the, yeah. right, the right answer. <laughs> yeah, so we have Lori Santos. We actually were recording this now. We just recorded with her. Um, it was great. Hi, uh, Lori is awesome. She's she's uh, for those who who don't know who she is. She's uh, she's a cognitive psychologist who studies non-human primates to understand human cognition. But she's also just one of the raddest people I know. So uh, stick around till the very end because she talks about monkey o faces and and does a great great uh, bulldog. I know, although we can't. We're going to have to ask her to send us an actual picture. Before we get to that, you want to talk about this Malcolm Gladwell review that came out? I guess it was in the Wall Street Journal and then he also wrote a response to some critics of the review in in Slate and we'll put up links to both of that. Yeah, I think it's actually kind of relevant. I was interested in it and uh, so this is from Christopher Chabri, or I don't know if he says it Chabris or Chabris or Chabri, but it's spelled like the French Chabri, uh, who's a cognitive psychologist who wrote a, a great review of, of uh, well, a review, a negative review that was well written of Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book. And I, 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 it was of interest to me because, you know, in some ways, Malcolm Gladwell has done a great deal of good for especially social psychology in as much as he, he just brought public attention to to the field. You know, his first book, The Tipping Point, and then Blink had a lot of, of social psychology in it. And for a while there, I always defended Gladwell's work because a lot of the people who criticized his books were, I thought, just being haters because he sells a lot of fucking books. So, and he's not a psychologist. And, but I honestly don't think that if, I think that if it weren't for him, you know, all of this like influx of, of pop psychology, not pop psychology, but pop science books from the from psychologists would not people would just would not have sold as many books but like it's true he's a little fast and loose with his science and like in this latest book it appears as if like fast and loose doesn't even capture it like he's just being irresponsible so chris uh, shabri actually took him to task with this like pretty scathing review you read it right 
Yeah, I did. So, so uh, I mean, there are a lot of specific examples. I guess the big one that he harps on in both the review and the response to the review is this one where there was some effect demonstrated that he took to just be a well documented effect but in fact it was the, the whole effect was based on a study with 22 Princeton University yeah. students and then and the study but, but it's even worse than that, that. that's the, yeah yeah but it, but it's even worse than that it was they tried to replicate it with 300 Canadian uh, students and 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 they and it was not able to be rec- yeah, and to be fair like to the the study that was originally done which is the study on so difficult to read fonts compared to to easy to read fonts and their effect the, the effect of the font on sort of processing style so like people people did better at tasks when they had difficult to read fonts there's a whole literature on cognitive fluency that this is like supposed to be getting at and independent of whether or not that study has been replicated it wasn't it wasn't trying to show what gladwell used it to show which is essentially like oh if, if only people were were more dyslexic like they'd be better at Right. That was, I guess, the, the apparently that's a big part of the book, the dyslexic people. Right. And, and, and you can see, I mean, it has that Gladwell thing where, you know, it has that counterintuitive yeah. uh, little free song yeah. like that free song. <laughs> and then <laughs> that a breed of and then, <laughs> and then uh, well, you say you pronounce the guy's yeah, name. I know, I know, I got- yeah. We should just do the rest of this in French. Uh, but it also – it has a kind of like pleasing like underdog like, oh, here's this thing we thought was an obstacle, but it actually helps you and that being challenged is actually good for right. you. you know? except, for the, uh, except for the part of the disease that is defined as having difficulties. <laughs> like, like, You're just waiting for the study where having a really small penis actually leads to doing better on, on, on math. <laughs> I mean, no wonder I'm bad at math. (laughs) So, yeah, what do you think about the criticism? Because it's interesting. I mean, the criticism is essentially that this is – this is a, a, a real problem because Malcolm Gladwell is giving off the illusion like we've discovered these psychological laws and that can predict human behavior and that you might actually apply. And people have tried to apply in businesses, in various other domains in life. And, you know, if they're based on research that he's either misinterpreting or you know the conclusions are much more tentative than he makes it appear is that a really ultimately destructive thing that he's doing i think so i mean again even if he had really used that study in the way that he should have like even if that study were like showed what he says it shows which i don't think it does gladwell's not a scientist and i know like you can criticize whether psychology in general is a science but at least like we follow the scientific method and one of the things that i really notice uh that's different in the way that people who have gotten their hands dirty and actually played with data and collected data is that you you know the nuance and you're much more reserved and guarded in And when you report those findings, so people who just have never actually bothered to like run the study, you you know how sloppy it is, you know what the the effect size is, you know what it means to say that like that this was run on college students and like 20 people per condition in and none of that nuance comes across in Gladwell's work. Whether it's damaging or not, I guess, depends on what exactly he's saying. He could, by accident, do a lot of good, you know, by over, like, by inflating the, the, the findings. Right. All 
these dyslexic people are walking with an extra spring exactly, in their step, you know. Exactly. Right? So, but but the problem with the general strategy is that you're going to get you're going to get shit wrong. And what's extra bothering, like what's extra worrisome to me, is that Gladwell doesn't even seem he doesn't seem to care about this criticism. You know, well, that's the thing, you know, and, this, and I think you see this especially in the response to the review, the slate piece. Uh, Gladwell, you know, there's a sense in which he wants to have it both ways. Oh, you don't take me seriously. Right. I'm just a popularizer. I'm just trying to tell a good story, and the science is a way of helping me do a good story. But I'm not. I'm not one of these people that's getting peer reviewed. So on the one hand, he says that, and maybe he's not. I mean, maybe the big problem is. He's being consistent with that attitude, but, you know, other people think this is the gospel. You know, this is uh, Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments right. and telling you how it really is. Yeah. I mean, if, if his story didn't depend on it being true and scientifically valid, like that would be – he would be being consistent. But he's actually – like the force of his writing comes from these claims that are actually empirical. So it's really sad because I think – Gladwell is so creative, and he actually has the eye of a great behavioral scientist. He just doesn't have the rig- like the rigor. I mean, not that all of us do. Even and he's a great writer. He's a great writer, and he could just be doing a- like my in my ideal world, he would admit that like he spoke way beyond the data in this particular book and promised to do better and not just try to defend it. And you know, there's there. It's not like it's impossible to be a good popularizer. And right. present reasonably accurate. <laughs> right, and it's not like it's, it's like, hard to find whatever you want to find too in our discipline. Like he could, he could have just searched a little bit more in the literature and pull. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there are counterintuitive free songs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Just like they're coming at you from all sides. And uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't know. You know, the other guy who recently got into trouble for this, although more for plagiarism, Jonah right, Lehrer. Right. He was the other journalist, science journalist, that was really popular. Uh, now, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell has not had a downfall in any way, no, right? I yeah, mean, but I think a lot of the reason there was extra attention paid to Jonah Lehrer was because, like, he was a little bit fast and loose with the way that he talked about about science as well. And there is just, it's there's a point where being that sure about findings in our discipline is, like, to me, a big red flag we're not there as a science i don't think we're even there as a science in physics like i'm sure that there is like popularizers of physics stuff that like get blasted by actual physicists when they think like oh new evidence shows the universe not as old as we thought and then you know i'm sure physicists are like oh my god they didn't bother to read the paper but like in this case like there's just you don't need to know fucking heisenberg's like equation <laughs> you just need to read a little bit more than the abstract of one paper yeah i mean i <laughs> I have a hard time figuring out how much I'm troubled by this, but I already come from a place where I'm inherently skeptical yeah. of some of this research, and I think a lot of other people don't. Yeah. Just like Molly Crockett was telling us with the, you know, anytime you show a brain right. by something, okay, now people extra believe it. You know, it has the imprint of science when Gladwell says it, and so people think, okay, well, that's scientific. Well, and that's actually like my big concern like i don't really care if malcolm gladwell sells him you know makes a gajillion fucking dollars selling this at the end of the day it's going to undermine the public's confidence in in the actual science and you guys want to do that to yourselves <laughs> yeah, you don't well, want anyone else to we do should it. be able to do it on, yeah. sometimes <laughs> yeah. I was, it's like sometimes i just wish that we were 
Like we just were left to our, like we just sat and did our work and didn't even bother with public dissemination. And if people wanted to find out about it, they could go look up the journal articles. It's just a lot of danger when we start. And we're doing this to ourselves. What you say is actually true. We're doing this plenty to ourselves, like with our TED Talks and whatnot. Yeah. And scandals. You're making up data scandals. Although, you know, every science does it. We're just that. If anything, that just shows that we're a real science. Oh, speaking of a great popularizer, we want to very much urge all of our listeners to go out and get Purr. Oh yeah, Jesse Baring's new book has just been released. Right, it was released this past Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, de- and- so definitely buy it. Buy it. It's available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And and it's just it's just such a it's just interesting. This like Jesse's just interesting. Listen to the podcast with him if you if you don't believe us. And actually. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. should put in a plug for blo- the Blogging Heads episode where Jesse Baring and Lori Santo, like Lori interviews Jesse and they have a conversation that was nowhere near as dirty as it would have been had it been on Very Bad Wizards, but interesting nonetheless. Like I'll put it, we'll put a link to it. Also, for those of you who like philosophy podcasts, there's a great resource called philosopherspipe.com. They, they just assemble all the latest podcasts from various sources. They have our good friends at Partially Examined Life, but also smaller podcasts. It's all set out on the webpage in a very nice and clear manner. Strongly recommend that you check out philosopherspipe.com. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link to it. And if you don't know, we we always put links to everything or lots of stuff that we talk about on the show at verybadwizards.com. Yeah, check out our webpage. Yeah. If you want to support us, you can either support us directly via PayPal or you can very easily click on the Amazon link. And I know this is hard to remember because I barely I, I remember half the time, but click on the Amazon link before you shop at Amazon and then a little portion of of whatever you buy, whatever you're going to buy anyway, goes to us. You can also rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and tweet us at Very Bad Wizards, at Very Bad Wizards. And that site is uh, run by the great Matt Welsh, who's been helping us out, and at Tamler and at Peas. And email us at VeryBadWizards.com. VeryBadWizards no. at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Thank you. All right. We'll be back with Laurie Santos, so stay tuned. As I come back, come back. As I come back, come back. My style is kind of fat, fat. My style is kind of fat, fat. So rumpin' that the brothers rolled the zack zack. The brothers rolled the zack zack. The brothers rolled the zack zack. I'm coming back. Mustala kinda fat fat. Mustala kinda fat fat. Right, fucking whack, fucking whack, fucking whack. Go ahead, do your trick. Speak. Go on, speak again. There. Can you believe it? Yes, amusing. A man acting like an ape. Dr. Zayas, I could swear he's answering me. He has a definite gift for mimicry. It is most unusual. He's using that old blanket as clothing. I wonder how he'd score on a Hopkins manual dexterity test. An animal? 
Look, he's moving his fingers. Only because he saw you moving yours. Well, but perhaps he understood. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. I'm afraid I must disagree. According to my experiments... Dr. Zira, I must caution you. Experimental brain surgery on these creatures is one thing, and I'm all in favor of it. But your behavioral studies are something else again. To suggest that we can learn anything about the simian nature from a study of man is sheer nonsense. Uh, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, and now we're lucky enough to have... Lori Santos joining us from the university. Lori, you, Lori's an awesome, awesome person, particularly because she agreed to talk to us losers um, about this, uh, about any of her work. Sort of risking her reputation, but you have tenure, Lori, right? So, it's true. So yeah. wel- welcome and thank you. It's going to have to get really bad. To- <laughs> it's going to be really. See, I'm in Texas. They're looking for an excuse to fire me. I mean, they're just like, give me a reason. Um, yeah. So, so Lori, Lori is a friend of mine, but not of Tamler's. <laughs> um. No, in fact, uh, this has got to be the first question. This is going to be a hard hitting interview. I, I think I friended you on Facebook two or three months ago and just silence i think i have like in the friend feed like some slightly creepy people so i kind of like ignore it even when there's like new legitimate friends <laughs> you want the list of creepy no, people? i think that's probably the list i belong <laughs> i wasn't paying so much attention to the interview right now i would go on facebook immediately <laughs> thank you for being here um so laurie i guess to get give you like the the really short version of what you do you study what is your degree in it i guess it's just in psychology but do you consider yourself cognitive yeah so I've, i feel like i trained as a cognitive psychologist all my early work was actually in like cognitive science like briefly worked with people like steve coslin and others and so i kind of trained in the information processing approach so i think of myself as a straight cognitive psychologist but i study other animals right. uh, to get it. Does the label primatologist actually apply to, to people who do what you do? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, so I think some people treat primatology as just any study of primates. Um, but I think that that typically is like people who are just studying behavior rather than cognition. Um, it's funny, like the people who publish studies who do exactly what I do come from really different training. So um, one of my favorite people who study primates, Brian Hare, um, does fantastic work, but his training was really in evolutionary anthropology, and he kind of came to cognition second. Whereas I'm sort of a cognitive psychologist who, by training, didn't know about animals at all, who like got up to speed on animals to like study the origins of cognition. So, so, so it's, it's fair to say that your interest is in in cognition, and animals are sort of one one good way to to study it. But your your interests are broad, not not specifically in non human primate cognition, but just in. I mean, I joke, like, I spend all this time hanging out and studying monkeys, but I don't care about monkeys at all. I mean, I'm mostly just interested in humans. Right. Um, yeah, but- I, I, you let off a talk saying that, I remember. Yeah. Why do you hate monkeys? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate monkeys. They're just, like, less interesting. Actually, monkeys are pretty fascinating. That's not true. I do find monkeys fascinating, but it's mostly looking at them and comparing them to humans. Like, if you hang out with them, on the one hand, they're, like, so similar to us, right? Like, they want to, like... Mac and they want to like their kids to do well and they want to like move up in hierarchy and they like sweet food and like want to eat and like but they navigate all those problems totally differently than we do um they don't have language and they don't seem to be able to think in terms in the same way i don't know coco had language i I don't know (laughs) 
Just kidding. As a hater of monkeys, she's probably thinking. As a hater of monkeys, I'm pretty, yeah. like, you know, sympathetic to the general. Yeah. Yeah, although Coco was an ape, I guess. But the, yeah. the, no, the <laughs> thing is that, like, I just hate doing studies with humans. So this was, like, broken into me when I was, like, an undergrad, and I was actually running cognition studies on human participants. And the part that I hated most was, like, you, you know there's somebody coming at four, and you're, like, waiting in the room, <laughs> 402, 404. They're not going to show up. Like, they're just not going to show up. And I would just get so angry. And that's yeah. so the best. The best outcome would be if you could keep little humans in a cage somewhere, <laughs> and then it, I would like to live in a moral universe where that was seen as ethically <laughs> totally reasonable, and then we could get some real science. Let's talk about some of those studies. Should we talk about a couple of them that you brought up in the talk that I saw? This was a talk, we'll put a link to this, that you gave in Nantucket, right? Yeah, and so that talk was, uh, so typically when people are interviewing folks who study animals, um, a lot of the questions are where are the spots where animals are similar to humans, right? I mean, this has been most of the history of comparative work in the fields, like, oh, humans have tool use. I bet no other critter possibly has that. And then you look and lo and behold, they have it. Or, you know, humans have a theory of mind. I bet no other critter has that. And you look and they have some parts of it. So usually the story is about finding the similarities. Um, but these days there are spots where I think we're seeing some interesting differences that might be telling us some, some cool stuff about what's unique to humans. And so that was why I linked. That was why I gave you guys that talk to start with. So let's talk about some of those studies. So a couple are in this domain of like, I take it to be about the automaticity with which we jump into other people's heads. Other animals seem pretty good at, in some ways, thinking about what other guys see and know. Um, but it seems like humans might do that a little bit more automatically. And so this is work of, there, there's a couple of folks who've been doing this stuff. Uh, folks like Ian Apperley and colleagues started some of this work. Um, but the most famous recent paper was by uh, Agnes Kovacs and her colleagues in the Hungarian group. And basically what they did was just give subjects some object detection tasks. So you're just watching an object go behind an occluder and occasionally the occluder is going to fall and you have to say, is the object there or not? And so when it's like, I'm good at that, by the way, I'm awesome. (laughs) I suck at that one. (laughs) Three card money gets me every time. Yeah. yeah. Well, regular subjects reasonably good at this, except when like psychologists do stupid things, like you see the object leave and then, oh, lo and behold, the object's there not right. But usually based on your own beliefs about where the object was, you get it right. This would be an incredibly boring study to do, except that Kovacs and colleagues also added in this weird social component. So incidentally, on the screen, randomly while you're doing the task, there's this smurf standing there who's sometimes paying attention and sometimes not. And the question Kovacs and crew asked was, does what the smurf think about the location of this object behind the screen mess you up? In other words, you're just watching a thing, you know where the object is. But if the Smurf thinks something, does that affect what you think? And I think the shocking thing that they find is that, in fact, yes, it does. So when the Smurf has a false belief about the location of the object, it actually speeds you up even in cases where you're wrong. And so the implication is like somehow you're automatically taking on what this random Smurf on a screen believes to be the case about the world. Um, And the more amazing thing about this paper and the reason I think it got published in Science is that uh, it's not just adult humans who do this, seven-month-old babies do it too. So from seven months of age, babies are like processing information about what some random character on a screen thinks, and it affects like how fast they make judgments about stuff in the world. But this was like my favorite paper to come out in like the last two years. I mean, present company's papers excluded. <laughs> so <laughs> so what? 2013, really. <laughs> 
what exactly is the is is the implication there? Is that is that something that we have seen with our own eyes? And what the Smurf does is fairly subtle, right? That actually makes it take longer for us to get the right answer. Exactly. So it's as though, as though when we're when we're watching the scene and we're like, oh, the Smurf is wrong. It kind of, in some sense, makes us wrong a little bit too. Um, it's as though by kind of processing their belief, we kind of get it confused in some sense with what we ourselves believe. And I think that this at a really subtle level about objects and occluders behind the screen um, is going to wind up telling us a lot about confusions between what we think and cases of conformity and cases of automatically just being around somebody who believes something, we take on a little bit of that too. Like the claim is that as we're kind of simulating what other people think, there's some interference between what they think and what we think. And I think this has all kinds of far reaching implications that are com- complete speculation because there's no empirical evidence for this stuff yet. Um, but I feel like it's potentially really important. So there is a, a, a weird way in which infants seem to have all of these abilities that then seem to drop off Right. And is it because as cognition develops in human beings that these sort of more complex processes like system two make us correct for it before we can answer? And then like, is it because with everything you look at in like infant cognition, it seems as if, well, look, seven month olds can do it, but like three year olds are pretty bad at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of cases of that. Like the most, I I think the most robust cases aren't in the social domain. They're in the physical domains. You show you show babies these events where all these impossible physical things happen and they show surprise at these events. So they look longer, but then you have a three-year-old who should have all those same representations, try to figure out where the thing is. And they like look incredibly stupid and show all these kinds of specific biases and so on. Um, the honest answer is that nobody knows what's going on with that disconnect, but it does seem to be something about like translating the representations that you have for kind of processing things into like how you act in the world. Um, and a particular culprit is when you have to use like linguistic information to do it like that, that connection between like actually verbalizing your representations, um, seems to be a spot where kids end up messing up a lot. And that's, that's for sure true in this theory of mind domain, but like why that happens is still a big million dollar question in developmental psychology. So if any of your listeners want to send in answers to how <laughs> it's explicit cognition doesn't map on their implicit cognition. I feel like that'd be helpful for us. Our podcast is not about the progress of science. Okay. <laughs> Furthering the progress of science <laughs> is the last thing that we do. I love the choice of this of a Smurf to do this because if I could pick a character that I would you know least want to influence me in any way, that's just a, such an assault on human dignity that a Smurf can actually get in our heads and, influ- <laughs> and influence our, our beliefs. Because the Smurfs are probably the worst cartoon in the oh, history of cartoons. On. No, no, no. There's worse cartoons. Like, name a worse cartoon. The whole point of the show was that sometimes, for some words, they they would say Smurf instead of that word. That was the whole show. That was the comedy of the show. I mean, it's ridiculously. It's very misogynistic. The Smurfs, you know, like and there's like weird subtext there. But. Oh, I know. And uh, Smurfette actually was originally a brunette. Really? No. She was created by Gargamel as this evil lure to get the Smurfs like over to him. And then they saved her, like Papa Smurf magically transformed her into a good person. And when he did that, she turned into a blonde character. I think this is just your Smurf fan fiction. I swear to God, I've got, I, that swear, you've I promise you, I'm going to put a link to this story, The Origins of Smurfette. There's going to be what? some it, creepy Smurf fan fiction. I know. <laughs> 
No, no, but wait, wait, but, but in all like scientific seriousness about the Smurfs, I mean, I think this is one of the th- things I find fascinating about the result is it's not a human. It's not a human with all kinds of human cues. It's just this incidental Smurf, um, which raises this other question about like what, what kinds of minds get in and which don't. Because the thing that we should be fascinated about is not that we can simulate a Smurf. I mean, we can simulate Hyder and Simul dots on a screen that are intentional in some way. But the thing is, we don't simulate everybody. I mean, it's like Lasana Harris stuff suggests we don't simulate homeless people. Yeah. Smurf, we're like, yeah, what does the Smurf believe? Like, I'm jumping in your brain, Smurf, but homeless... Well, and that's that's why I think that we turn... There is something that happens where we start filtering this information. I mean, I don't know about the, the Harris work, if there is a good sort of reaction time implicit measure for even homeless people. But I wouldn't doubt even if our sort of... At, the, at a top-down level, our categorization influences even our basic mental attributions in a way that it would never for infants. Yeah. So talk about the other study, because that's the one that you find in a similar kind of study that the the, uh, chimpanzees aren't susceptible to this distorting effect. Yeah. So we've done a couple things with this. One is we've done exactly that study, um, although not with a Smurf. It's actually my graduate student, Alia Martin, who does this stuff, who's the first author and stuff. Um, she's much more attractive. She's, she's better. She's much better than Smurf. <laughs> um, she's much more compelling as an actress, I think, than the sort of two-dimensional Smurf. But, um, but what we find is, like, basically the monkeys don't show this effect at all, right? So they, they are surprised when the object moves based on their own beliefs. And so we... We can show that they're paying attention to tasks and all stuff. They're just not automatically taking on anybody's beliefs. And so we've been thinking about how does this play out in the real world, right? It, it seems like other primates c- could potentially jump into your head, but they don't do it automatically, and they don't do it in cases where they don't need to. Um, and so this led uh, one of the other pap- me to send you one of the other papers I did, which is this line of work on what's known as over-imitation. And so these are cases where we're learning from other people and we're imitating what they're doing. But if we just went on our own knowledge, we wouldn't need to copy them. In fact, because what they're doing is kind of stupid. And so the way this plays out is you give you have subjects watch, and subjects could be kids or uh, chimpanzees, and you have them watch as some demonstrators opening a puzzle box. And if the puzzle box is opaque, you can't see how it works, both kids and chimpanzees will copy the person perfectly. Um, but the interesting case is when the box is transparent, and the kid or the chimp can see that the demonstrator is doing a bunch of stupid stuff to open the box. Um, and so in one version of this, the demonstrator is like sticking things in the top of it and like doing, moving this tool around and doing all this stuff. But then the kid and the chimp can see there's like nothing in the top of the box. It's just totally superfluous that they're doing it. Um, and so the question is when the kids and chimpanzees have a go at the box themselves, what do they, what do they do? Do they copy what they just saw? Or did they, like, just solve the puzzle on their own? And what you find is that chimps are super smart at this. They ignore the demonstrator and just solve it on their own, whereas kids slavishly follow what they saw the person doing, even if right before the study they could have told you that you didn't need to do what the person was doing to solve the task. Um, And so Derek Lyons, who was a a former student here at Yale, um, did all kinds of stuff to try to see if he could get this effect to go away, basically, um, by like convincing the kids, like, you're not really in a study, like, nobody's watching you, and you got to, like, solve the problem as quickly as possible and all this stuff. And what he finds is that it doesn't change the extent to which kids over-imitate, in part because when they see somebody do something intentional, even if it looks stupid, 
they end up making up a causal reason why you have to do that to open the box. So it's like, you know, when we see somebody do something intentional, be it open a stupid box or like bow to a particular idol or like do some crazy superstitious thing, the claim is that it's changing our causal representations of the world. It's not just like mindlessly following what this person does, but we're taking on their intentions and their beliefs when we watch it um, in a way that other animals don't. And so... So, so we're actually, is, is it then an issue of like our, our understanding of causality? Are we more likely to, to come up with complex causal schemes for natural phenomena as well? If you show somebody, you know, like the, uh, those, those complicated, what do you call those? Goldberg. Those go, yeah. Rube Goldberg stuff. Are we like that with the physical world? Is this, or is this something that's strictly to the domain, in the domain of intentionality and causal human causality or, or agent causality? I mean, a couple of things. One is like, you don't, I don't think you get it. I think you need a social agent who like intentionally thinks something to get it. And in fact, Derek has shown that if you have the demonstrator do exactly the same thing, but it's obvious that it's not intentional, like he's doing it by accident, you don't get it. So it really has to look like somebody's trying to ostensibly intentionally show you something. But when they do that, it changes your causal percept of what's going on. I mean, so it, it seems like other animals can use social information. To figure out causes that they don't know, but if they know the physics, they're not going to go on the basis of social information. Whereas it seems like we overweight the social information and go with that, even over our own physics knowledge, even when we know it's like physically impossible or physically crazy or whatever. Presumably, this gives us an advantage, but at the end of the day, if the the chimp or whatever primate that's not human cuts out the superfluous stuff. Right. They they cut out the handicap and just keep the good stuff, it sounds like, right? Yeah. Keep out. They they have the, this person's telling me how to do this task, but then when they don't need that, they don't use it and we still do. Right. And so one possibility, I mean, the folks who do this work claim like, Yes, it looks stupid in this context, but this this is the same mechanism that allows us to learn all the smart stuff that we do culturally too, right? One way to look at it is like all the physics that you ever need to know to be a chimp interacting with the chimp artifact world, your little chimp brain already has all that physics, right? So like you can go on your physical knowledge and deal with like stupid chimp tools and the stuff they have, right? And then you get to our world where we're filled with like crazy artifacts and just causal structures that we don't know at all. I mean, it took us an hour and a half to get on the Skype, right? We deal with causal structures that we wouldn't know from our naive physics. How do we figure them out? Well, we have these social agents who know how to do this stuff and we figure it out. Um, But when you have that, then you also get things like, I don't know, transmission of social processes that look really dumb, right? Cases of ritual and superstition that feel like they have causal components, but... But so... The adaptive story is then gets a little weird because if if at some point this emerged, it makes sense to make the argument that this allows us to have complex co- cultural causality and art, dealing with artifacts and Skype and everything. But what would be the pressure that first gives rise to that? It, it, you know, if that's the direction. If it's not that direction, then clearly we can construct cultural causal schemes that don't require. You know. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two possibilities. I mean, one is maybe we got this mechanism separately. Like maybe it's about social learning and learning to follow norms and learning to do all this social stuff. And then we overapply it. We have this mechanism now and just overapplies in the physical domain. The flip side is like, maybe, maybe it did start off for like figuring out the artifact world. 
And the idea there is, yeah, the chimp in this puzzle box case kind of gets the physics, but there's a lot of cases where like the physics isn't super obvious or like would take you a while to trial and error on your own. And so if you just have this mechanism, well, just do what everybody else does or think what everybody else does or figure out causes for people's actions then that might get you pretty far. So you can imagine like only a little bit of ambiguity if you're prioritizing a bunch of other smart agents who know how to do it could could help. Yeah. But the crazy thing is here is a spot where two two things is weird from the comparative perspective. One is we're seeing these neat differences with animals, right? Usually we're often seeing lots of similarities and here's a spot where it's totally different. Second, like at least in this task, it makes people look pretty stupid, right? I mean, probably it's for something right. smart or revolutionary. It's not like a social psychology study. Yeah, exactly. It makes people yeah. – <laughs> right. It makes people look dumber than apes. Uh, what do you take to be the sort of, I don't know, ethical Im- implications of this or the practical, you know, real-life implications? Does, does it describe all sorts of troubling cult – beliefs and i mean is it responsible for the shutdown for is it <laughs> it's exactly we found, yeah. we found out yes, we figured out the mechanism <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know the honest thing is like nobody's look yet to see if these kinds of mechanisms are where conformity in these kinds of cases come from but i think you know if it's the case that incidentally watching a smurf on the screen and how much he knows about where some object is affects what i know about where that object is Presumably in real world context where there are real humans who are in my in-group who are kin and I share different other social norms with, presumably it happens even more robustly there and might generalize beyond beliefs about things like where an object is, what God I believe in, what political party I think is right. Um, Nobody's done those studies that I know of yet, but I think this is going to have pretty widespread implications, particularly in cases where like the beliefs are about these things for which I have no evidence, right? So, so I think it, it could potentially be powerful, but nobody knows. But there are all these curious phenomena that like are just waiting to be looked at. I mean, one of these crazy cases of what's known as uh, uh, epidemic hysteria. This is like in some like grade school, some girl like has some weird thing was like, I'm just dancing. I can't stop dancing. And then other people in her class are like, oh my God, I can't stop dancing either. And like, transmit through high schools or through like, you know, social groups or whatever. It's like, what the heck's going on? But you know, maybe it's just if you're around some agent who's intentionally dancing and we don't know the cause, but... You know what to me is the mystery isn't the cases of hysteria. It's that it seems to have happened so much more in the past. When you read some of these accounts of hysteric groups, you know, like the flagellants or like the... Like, yeah. uh, those Or those kids who like St. Saint, Saint, Saint Vitus's dance, is that what it was? Yeah. Like why that just doesn't happen more often or whether there's just like some bias in reporting like back then they chalked everything up to like. i don't know i feel like we have our own version of- <laughs> so yesterday on the internet i watched this youtube video of what does the fox say do you know this song yes oh my god it's like why did i watch that That's i watched wait like, what it what is like, it it's just it's usually this stupid song it's like by some like i don't know what european nation they are but they sing this song about what does the fox say and then they like make fox sounds and they're like in fox like furries costume it's like super <laughs> i watched like, Why would that be something that either of you would have seen? Never because mind we both pay of you. To the internet. What do you mean? We're embedded in human culture right now, which apparently is about what foxes say. What and foxes. Tamler finds memes like three months later and then shares them on Facebook. But, then but, get, which you would know if you friended me on Facebook. <laughs> <but you> do. <laughs> Why do you think she's avoiding it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, now I see you need me on Facebook. To tell I do. Uh, I, I have to. I have to see these fox videos. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what a fox. What is it? Nose. Fox sounds. No, we don't know. That's the whole point. Yeah. Um, I, so I have a question I want to get to before, uh, yeah. before we have to go, which is 
So when you're when you're looking at at these different species of non-human primates, it is pretty clear that there are pretty big differences between them. Like, so I, there, one specific question, which is, do we look to all? Like, how much do we conclude about human cognition from these, given how much how different they are from each other? And then specifically, and I told you I wouldn't get into the whole monkey sex question, but I have to, which is, you look at bonobos. Versus chimpanzees in the domain of their sexual behavior, that's crazy different. How do we know what to conclude about human cognition or behavior based on what the, on on the behavior and the cognition of non-human primates? And like, how do we you know are we are we more like bonobos or more like chimpanzees? Uh, do we GG rub? Do or... we? Well, I don't, but I've I've seen internet. <laughs> <laughs> if you look on the internet. You... <laughs> if you look on... No, no. Um, yeah, no. So I think a couple answers this. Um, one is, I think it's often helpful when we study not just one primate species, but multiple primate species, because we in the field have this tendency to like test something in chimps, like, oh, chimps do X, it must be that every animal does X, or like chimps don't do X, therefore nobody does X. And there have been a, a couple of cases recently where you just see this real variation in like really simple tasks in primates. So um, one is in the domain of generous or pro-social giving. Um, there was a study by Joan Silk and colleagues that came out in Nature where she was just looking at whether chimps have other regarding preferences. Um, and it turns out if you give chimps the chance to get the same amount of food for themselves, but also give some to others or not, then they're just like completely indifferent. So as long as they're getting the same amount of food, they don't care what happens to other guy. And this was written up in nature. It was like, wow, human other regarding preferences are totally unique. It's totally special. And then folks went out and ran the same study in capuchin monkeys and marmoset monkeys. And it turns out like all these other primates show other regarding preferences. Um, and so then the task is like, okay, well, what's different about a chimp's socioecology or what's different about chimps experiences or background that could drive these differences. And so sometimes it is the case that we see stuff in other species and we could test like, you know, every one of the hundreds of primates that are out there and we'd probably see it in everybody. But sometimes we see these interesting differences that tell us a lot because like some primates are similar to humans in some ways and not in others. And so then that gets to the chimps versus bonobos question. Um, and and the truth is that these species are actually pretty different beyond just the, like, GG rubbing. <laughs> That's the only part that matters. Yeah, it's really sad. Like, Love this, that GG rubbing. This really gorgeous, beautiful, nuanced bonobo cognition stuff. And bonobo researchers go to, like, some conference. They're like, tell me about I want to see the GG rubbing. Yeah, the, the next level. Take they it also, off. They also do penis fencing, which is the males like rub penises <laughs> together, which is yeah. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, but beyond beyond just the sexual differences, like you see all kinds of differences in their social system. So you see, um, it's not the case like in chimps that all the males are dominant to all the females. The females set up these bonds, and they can kind of override the aggression of the males. Um, um, which means you don't see as much aggression. You don't see aggression between groups. So it seems like bonobos are less xenophobic than chimpanzees. Um, they're also, you see differences in their decision-making where chimps are more kind of risk-seeking and the bonobos like are more safe going and whatever. And this raises all this question about the thing that you asked, Dave, which is like, are humans more similar to bonobos or more similar to chimpanzees? We're like horny and violent. We're like both, right? Yeah, yeah. We'd like to pick and choose. We like the good parts. Like, we'll take warfare and GG rubbing. We'll <laughs> and if you rub your GG with anyone else, I'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> There's really so much of human nature. Can be <laughs> um, 
but sadly, so I think, I mean, the jury, there are people who fight a lot about this and there are definitely people with different views. Um, mine is that if you look uh, across our socioecology and probably the how we evolved and where we evolved, it's likely that you're going to see humans being a lot more similar to chimpanzees than you are to bonobos. Um, because, so one of the reasons that bonobos are so nice to each other um, is that they all eat really, really boring food. And so there's just, they eat these roots and tubers and it's super boring and there's no competition for it. And so they can eat together. This is Richard Rangham's uh, demonic males hypothesis about chimpanzees. Bonobos can all hang out and like eat together, whereas chimpanzees are foraging for this stuff that there's just like high competition over. It's not really shareable. It's hard to share like a call of this monkey more so than like a bunch of grass. Um, and so what happens is that the, the chimpanzees don't, the females in particular, don't form as strong bonds. And then they don't have these, like, friendships that can, like, stop the males from being aggressive. And then you just see this, like, fallout of all kinds of other things that happen in their social life and their social groups from, like, what they eat. Um, but if you look at what humans ate and where we lived, we probably grew up in an environment much more similar to that of chimpanzees than to Bonobo, So it's... You know, it makes sense, actually, because you never see vegans get into bar fights. <laughs> but... So if it were only for the food, we would be like rubbing. <laughs> it would be so awesome if only we had had different food. Yeah. Well, there's also interesting hints of where the rubbing comes from. I mean, I think people people often call bonobos like the hippie primate or, you know, they like like super crazy Burning Man lifestyle. Sort of um, but it turns out that at least some of the sociosexual stuff seems to come from being highly anxious. Um, so Brian Hare's group has some interesting data suggesting that like, they're just like way more freaked out in general about everything, like really high cortisol responses to everything. And the sociosexual stuff is kind of like It's like their Valium. It's, yeah, it's like it's like Woody Allen. Like they're just like so pent up. Like, you know, there's like a novel piece of food sitting on the ground. They're like, ah, like somebody rub my feet. <laughs> Quick jerk off. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't work Dave Dave told me you don't work with monkeys anymore. You had this sweet deal in, in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, in that we still do a lot of field stuff with the monkeys, but I used to have a captive colony of capuchin monkeys, um, which for a variety of reasons I've uh, decided to uh, move on from. Um, the monkeys are very happy. They've moved on to do really cool stuff with Elizabeth Lonsdorf at Franklin Marshall College. So it's not like we just like, you know. The short of it, because Lori's not going to say it, is that she cares a lot about those monkeys and she wanted them to be happier. Yeah, I mean, that's one. I mean, so I, in my career, have done a lot of work with captive animals, but um, there's work with captive animals, and there's work with captive animals. I mean, there's ways that animals can live in captivity, um, having normal social relationships, have, being psychologically healthy, and so on. And I've prided myself on having facilities that did that and always said I wouldn't work with them unless I felt like they were like super ethically housed and they were happy and so on. Um, and, uh, and for various reasons, uh, I was thinking it might be better to switch gears and work only with field animals because in part because of funding and in part because of limits on how much space you can give them at universities, it, it's getting trickier and trickier to house them in ways that I feel like they're super, super happy. So now um, you're just caging dogs. Yeah. Now, now we're working with dogs, which, you know, it's like, just like with humans, we don't know what environment they come from, but you know, we are nice to them when they come to the, the facility and the canine center. And they're not, they're not <laughs> captive, right? These are just dogs you recruit or yes, sir, these are people's companion animals. So yeah. like people bring their dogs that they have in their homes in for the studies and we run the dogs and it's pretty fun. Um, the, the, the funny thing is like, 
I don't think I realized till we kind of got into this how variable dogs are. That's what I was going to ask. Like, isn't it crazy? Like the amount, like the difference between like a Chihuahua and like a German Shepherd. At, yeah, like- yeah. It's totally crazy. I mean, so we've been doing cool work at these doggy daycares. We're starting our facility at Yale in the next two months, hopefully. Um, but but you just get a string of dogs. So people are nice enough to assess their dogs. We have their little doggy consent forms filled out by the their guardians. And we're like, all right, let's bring in the dogs. And so we bring in dog number one that's like a like German shepherd, and he's huge. And we have to, like, set up the puzzle box, like, super high, and he's, like, huge. And then he leaves, and we bring in this beagle who's, like, super motivated. And so she's, like, <laughs> like, as soon as she sees the food and nobody can do anything. And then we leave, and we bring in a bulldog, and they like, a weird mouth. So he- oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, why aren't that we was so- I wish we had a video of that. That was such a good bull- bulldog right there. <laughs> It's like from their size to their like motivation to everything we've seen, there's just huge variability. Um, and so it's cool whenever we get any signal, but, um, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more challenging than the primate stuff. So it's fun, but it's been tricky too. You got to just do what social psychologists do and study one very specific, like like this college sophomore version of dog, like Labrador retrievers that are like two years old. Like that's it. And then just generalize. And then I'll make my career by writing a paper called the weirdest dogs in the world. Uh, we might be testing those dogs. No, but I think it's like, I mean, this is, this I think is a big issue is that we act like we're studying the origins of this stuff and it could just be like a complete, a complete mess. I mean, and when we've looked, particularly even in, in the, some of the developmental work with kids, like at weird, at non-weird populations, they look completely differently. Like even in infants, you're like, okay, infants, obviously no experience. This, right. this must be like what is built in innately and looks totally different in the Hatsa as it does in the humans in, in like Western humans. So <laughs> in the humans. <laughs> in, the, in the good kind of humans. <laughs> so do you have any strong opinions about animal treatment in laboratories, both for medical research, but also for scientific research? I mean, is that something that you think about, worry about a lot? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, I, I have lots of kind of nuanced views on it. I mean, on the one hand, um, I like to be able to go to the doctor and get things that make me feel better. And I can't, if, if I was pretending like I wasn't doing that on the heels of a lot of invasive animal work, that would be like a lie. And so on the one hand, I appreciate that that work is done. Um, I feel personally pretty skeeved out about doing it in a way that is a completely inconsistent set of moral preferences <laughs> that I admit to. Like I wouldn't do, I wouldn't be able to do that work myself, but I'm kind of happy that it's done. That said, there are a lot of people doing invasive work that could be doing it in a way that was better for the animals. And one of the frustrations of working with animals in captivity is that there are all these regulations that are supposed to be there to protect them. And sometimes when you look at those regulations, they they're, they're not doing what's really best for the animal. So so there's a lot of stuff on the books like make sure animals are you know physically healthy and they have to be in a clean environment that's sanitized and all this stuff. But there's way less stuff to make sure they're psychologically healthy or what they think of as like an easy way to intervene and make them psychologically healthy doesn't really work. Um, you know, so on the books in some universities are that you have to have, if you have captive primates, you have to give them enrichment, but an enrichment could be like ball. Like there's nowhere that like you have to give them enrichment of like another monkey, <laughs> like another constant, right? Which probably like a, like is baby Einstein videos. 
Yeah. And then, and then there's some cases where like, you know, folks are so worried about their health that they kind of miss what these creatures really are like. And so when we, we first set up our capuchin facility, um, at Yale, it was, you know, this big kind of floor to ceiling, like the zoo enclosure, like this big space for them to run around. And, you know, the, the vets, I think very well intentioned, you know, caring about the Kuchin's health were like, wait, this is a really big space. Like, what if they fall? Like, that's really high for them to crawl. Like, <laughs> if they fall and hurt themselves. And I'm like, well, these are like arboreal animals. They live in the rainforest. They're like, they, and what if, like, what if they fight? And it's like, well, they're totally going to fight. Like, they're monkeys. Like, that's what monkeys do. They beat each other up. And and so so I think the balance of, of, of wanting to help them, there's so much well-intentioned stuff, but sometimes people set these things up in ways that could be better. Um, that sounds like exactly what's ruined, like, so many playgrounds in the country. Yeah. It's like paranoia about like, you know, don't let them get hurt or don't let anybody sue you. And then it's like, you're kind of completely missing like what matters. The other thing is like treating all animals the same, right? And there's certain animals that have special needs and special things they want that, um, that you should be giving them. Like, so, uh, I remember at one point I was working with new world monkeys who sent Mark. Right. Um, and so they have these little, like, um, like, uh, mini houses that they kind of live in like, sort of boxes that are like their home box that they sleep in. And, you know, they're so worried about like any disease transfer, everything has to be really sterile, like a hospital. And so the rules was on the books that you had to like sterilize these little home boxes oh, every wow. day because the animal scent mark, it's like, every time you sterilize it, they're like, I don't know where I am. Like, just saying, oh. like where's my house? Like, and it's like, we can't have this on the books for these guys if they don't. What do you do about that? This is like a problem that I think generalizes. If you have a set of regulations, there's going to be a one-size-fits-all problem no matter what it is. No matter what the domain, there's going to be a one-size-fits-all problem. You adopt a virtue – you adopt a virtue theory of uh... – Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean that's sort of where I'm going with this. Is there some way to train people to just do what's best for the animal in a way that – you know, would make this, you could particularize your care for the animal and just make their lives so much better in the process. I mean, like not to like toot the horn of comparative people, but one of, one of the things you can do is ask the animal what it wants, right? Have these measures where you can look at their real preferences. Um, and, and sometimes there are cases where you get answers that are like weird, that it's hard to anthropomorphize, but we have these ways to ask them. Um, so one of these famous cases was a case of uh, mink. People are going to farm mink and we can have various views about whether that's ethically appropriate or not, but there are these farms, given that there are these farms, how can you make the mink's lives like happier that, if you're going to have them, right? And there's this question, like, what do the mink want, right? And there's things on the books, like, you got to give them food, you got to give them water. Um, well, uh, this group of behavioral ecologists tried to ask the question. So they gave the mink, like, a sort of mink sort of Monty Hall, like, but, like behind door number one, another mink or, like, whatever, water or something. The donkey and then the donkey. Uh. <laughs> they, they can do, yeah, the donkey, the mink. Switch, switch. <laughs> um, but it turns out, like, whatever your guess is about the mink wants, it, it seems wrong. Like, so it turns out what they want more than anything else, more than another mink, more than food or whatever, is a little pool of water to like root around in. Like that's, that's what they want. Right. And if you, if you make them work to get to it, they will work to the point of hurting themselves to get into the spot with the water. Right. Like we would have no idea that that's what mink want. But now that we know that it's like, okay, ethically not having the water must be like starving them or like keeping them socially isolated, or this is psychologically bad for them. But we had to be able to ask, we have to have good measures to ask the animal about what's hurting them. 
Um, and this is, this is another thing that comes up is I think when you think about what pain is or when you think about what's going on in animals' heads, um, it's easy to use our own experience, but often we get it wrong. There were, uh, you know, occasionally because we have captive primates, we'll have kind of animal rights activists who come and protest and put up these kind of scary pictures. And um, I remember when I was in Cambridge in grad school, folks would always come for Animal Rights Week, and they had this one big picture of a rhesus monkey making his face. And it was like, this rhesus monkey is being tortured on this big poster. But I happen to know, because I work with rhesus monkeys during mating season, that what that face was was a copulation scream. <laughs> It's a male monkey ejaculating. That's the face he makes. And it was like, this is open. <laughs> you know, maybe it was. I don't know who the lady was, but it was, maybe it was. Like, oh, my God. We got to wrap on that. So we, you know what a monkey's ejaculating oh. looks like. Wow. Oh, I had, for every cop face I've seen. <laughs> I wouldn't need to fly uh, great. Well, thank you, Lori. I know that, that, that you've given us extra time. Yeah, this was so much fun. We, I, I want to do this again. I have a ton of other questions, so, so hopefully you'll come back on. I'll Facebook friend you, and then you can tell me when, uh, when we meet next. And we'll put up, we'll put up a bunch of uh, stuff to your work, and you also do blogging heads at Yale. Uh, so, so we'll have people, if they want more Lori, which, you know, is just the most reasonable thing. I have a feeling they're going to, yeah. Well, you know, when you give human beings like a Monty Hall problem, like, and you put Lori behind one of them, like they almost always want more Lori. Unless it's a donkey. (laughs) Unless it's a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Lori. Thanks so much. Thank you. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.